The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, we are nearing the end of the book of Revelation. And this whole sermon is going to be one of application. Ordinarily, I preach, walk through the text, and at the end, I draw out applications. But this whole sermon is to some degree an application of the, really, the entire book of Revelation. It's not comprehensive. We don't know everything that God wants us to do. But I was thinking as I was sitting in the pew of, of times in which individuals were, were cut to the heart and came to the proclaimer of the word saying, what shall we do? I think about that in the ministry of John the Baptist as numbers of ones would come and, and would ask, John, what should we do? And John the Baptist would give an answer appropriate to their office or station in life. And so on the day of Pentecost also... When Peter preached this incredible sermon, the gospel, now that Christ had died and risen and ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit had been poured out and Peter preached so boldly and clearly the gospel, there were those there for the Feast of Pentecost that came. They were cut to the heart and said, brothers, what shall we do? And so also the Philippian jailer, the same thing. As he drew Paul and Silas out of the Philippian jail, he fell before them and said, what must I do to be saved? And so I want you to think about that as we come to the text today. And uh, I'm going to have a chance in a few weeks, God willing, to go over the entire book of Revelation, as I always do when I finish a book. But I want you to keep that in mind. We've come to the end now. We're coming to the final chapter, the final verses. What shall we do? How can we put into practice the things that we've learned? Now, in this immediate setting here, as we begin at verse 6 and go on into uh, verse 12 or so, the immediate section we've just followed has been a revelation of the new heaven and the new earth, an unveiling of the new Jerusalem that finished up with the marvelous verses that we got a chance to just walk through last time, Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Look at them again. The angel showed me, John speaking, the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And His servants will serve Him. And they will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. And they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. So John has just finished The most sublime vision any human being has ever had. The vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And the vision of the radiant, perfect city of God, the new Jerusalem. And now John has to return to planet earth. The vision has ended. For him specifically to return to the rocky island of exile, the island of Patmos. Where he was living out his exile. And the sublime words that he has just had poured into his soul by this angelic guide, by the Holy Spirit. 
Now those words need to be lived out by faith. So the book of Revelation is drawing to a close. Revelation 22, 6 through 21, the rest of the chapter is the epilogue, really. The final section of the final chapter of the final book of the Bible. So as John returned to Rocky Island of Patmos, so we must return to our daily lives. The lives of our jobs and our families and our challenges, our medical issues, our financial issues, our wrestling with sin, our commitment to evangelize in our lives, to reach out with the gospel. We have to return. And we must not return unchanged. These words have to burn in our hearts. The Bible must make an impact on us and through us must make an impact on the world. And you think of the overwhelming ground that we've traveled now, 21 plus chapters. The vision of the things that are already presently going on in the heavenly realms. And the vision of the future. Many of these things I believe in the book of Revelation have not yet even begun. They're still in the future for us as they were in the future for John. Just closer now. And as we come to this final section, this, this part that Ben just read for us. We see that we've come full circle in the book of Revelation. There are clear parallels between the verbiage that you just heard read and the way the entire book began. And that's completely intentional. For example, Revelation 1.1 says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. God made it known by sending his angel. That's the first verse of Revelation. But look at verse 6. God sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. It's almost the exact same verbiage. And then Revelation 1.3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written, because the time is near. If you look at verse 7 of this chapter, it says, Blessed is he who keeps the words of this prophecy in the book. And then verse 10 says, For the time is near. Again, Revelation 1.8 I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. And then Revelation 1.17, the first and the last. And here in verse 13, you heard just read a moment ago, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Revelation 1.9, John writes, I, John. And then in verse 17, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Here in verse 8, it says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down. So there's definitely a, a sense that we've come full circle. We've come to the, back to where we started. And God wants to press in on our hearts now the application of the things that we've learned. So the question is, how then shall we live? Now that we've taken in all of this truth, how should it affect our lives? And this closing section sums up how we should respond. We're not merely to be astounded, amazed, overwhelmed, befuddled. And then return to life as it was uh, before. And still less are we supposed to shrug and act as though the words of the book of Revelation were not significant. It's not like John made all this up in his mind. It's not like John had some weird dreams or some hallucinations. We have to take this book as a, as a revelation, an unveiling from Almighty God of something he wants you to see. Something he wants you to know. And despite the powerfully symbolic nature of these words, this apocalyptic genre, this kind of writing that's so very difficult to understand and to interpret, 
He wants us to take these words and draw them in, to take them as much as we can grammatically, historically, literally, and try to understand them and apply them. And what they're saying about what God is like right now and what his plans are for the future of the human race. We should apply this to our lives. And for me, as I understand application, it always comes down to this. What should we understand? What should we believe? What, who should we be? And what should we do? Understand, believe, be, and do. That's application. Now, the fundamental issue here is the word that we are reading, the words that we have read together. Look at verse 6. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. This is a book of predictions. It's a book of the future. And we've seen many times before, and I never tire of reminding you that only the God of the Bible can do this. No other religion makes these kinds of predictions. Only God can tell us the future. As we learned in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. So the angel told John that the words of this book are trustworthy and they are true. Trustworthy means if you base your life on these words, you will not be disappointed. They will not fail you. And true means in the end, when we get to heaven, we will look back and see that all of the prophecies came true. That God let none of them fall to the to the ground, but everything that God predicted that he would do, he actually did. Now, when I think about this word trustworthy, that the word of God is trustworthy, I think about something I can put my weight on. Some time ago, I was reading to Daphne the book uh, Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson, and we had a hard time with the Scottish dialect, didn't we? We finally gave up on it. Um, and I like to write, read the primary source and all that, but I couldn't sound like, I couldn't get my Scottish burr going enough to be able to understand, actually, even, we were looking up Scottish words all the time. But there's a, a critical scene in there, early in the, in, the, in the story, in which David Balfour, who's the focus of the story, goes to his wicked uncle's creepy old castle where he lives, because his parents have died now and he needs to be taken in, he wants to be cared for by his uncle. And his uncle doesn't want to give him any of his fortune. And so he has him go up a spiral staircase up the tower in his creepy old castle. And he knows very well that one of the steps has been viciously altered so that it will give way when he puts his weight on it. And so it happens. As he goes up this darkened tower, he steps on this step and the thing just completely gives way and he starts to fall. But he manages to save his own life by grabbing another stair at the last minute, hanging there. Between heaven and earth, his life hanging in the balance. He manages somehow to escape and get off, off of it. Now that's an opposite illustration of what I'm talking about here. When you step out on the word of God, it will not give way. These words are trustworthy. Jesus likened it to building your house on the rock. It will not give way. When the storms of life attack it, you'll find it will be solid and secure. Everything you build on this book of Revelation will be solid and secure. 
notice actually that he mentions the words of Revelation again and again. Actually, Revelation 21 and 22, he talks about the words of this book. Go back one chapter to 21.5. And there it says, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So he wanted John to write down these words. Now look again at 22.6. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And then again in verse 7, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. And then 22.9, the angel said, I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. And then again in verse 10, then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Skip ahead to verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away words from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. It's almost like he's belaboring the point. These words that are in this book, they are the focus of your attention. Study them. This book must not be disparaged. It must not, not be ignored. Many scholars disparage it. They make light of it. Right up the road, there's a false teacher at UNC named Bart Ehrman. He is, his express purpose, he says, of the students, especially the evangelicals that come to his class, is to destroy their faith in the Bible. And he does special work on the book of Revelation. He says the book of Revelation is a genre that was well known in first century Judaism of apocalyptic in which the Jews were yearning for deliverance from the Roman oppression. And they would write these kind of visionary books hoping that God would come down and intervene and throw off the yoke of the oppressor. But it never happened. And so the book of Revelation is that kind of writing. Well, that's absolutely not true. Bart Ehrman actually said Jesus was an apop apocalypticist himself. That's a hard word to say. But an apocalypticist is somebody who indulges in this kind of genre and makes predictions that don't come true. Jesus said this generation would pass away, would not pass away before all these things had taken pl uh, place. And so Ehrman is zeroing in, saying even Jesus was wrong when he predicted the imminent return, the imminent destruction of Rome. Another unbelieving scholar said that the book of Revelation is a mess, disorganized. So this is the kind of disparaging that we must not do. Christ gave these words to tell us, his servants, the things that must soon take place. And there's no other book like it in the Bible. And he says in verse 7, I'm coming soon. He's coming soon to end history. Look at verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. He will return soon. And right before he left, at the end of his first advent, at the end of his, his mission on earth, in Acts chapter 1, they were curious and they were pressing on Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the Great Commission. Our job is to take the gospel to unbelievers. And after he had said this, his final words to the church, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So here at the end of the Bible, Jesus is predicting he will come back soon. He's coming back soon. Jesus is, in verse 13, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. History is going to come to an end. And so there's this sense of urgency. All of the early church had a sense of urgency about the imminent return of Christ. I'm coming soon. And so you see this again and again in the epistles, like Philippians 3.20. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies and make them like his glorious body. We are expecting, eagerly awaiting the second coming of Christ. Or again, 1 Corinthians 1.7. Therefore, he says to the Corinthian church, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Or again, to the converts in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, talked about their conversion. They tell the others who heard about what happened to you Thessalonians, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. To serve and to wait. That's what we do. We serve and we wait for the second coming of Christ. And he says here he's coming soon. Now, Jesus told a series of parables in Matthew 24 and 25 about our demeanor while we wait. There's a sense of urgency and expectancy. And so that's what the word soon does for us, as we've talked about many times before. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. He doesn't look at time the way we do. He's saying you need to have a sense of urgency as a Christian. Jesus is coming soon. And so he told a series of parables about that. Like Matthew 24, 45 and 51 through 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he tells another parable which has basically the same lesson. The parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins. You remember that one? And how the foolish virgin, virgins were not ready for the coming of the bridegroom. And they were excluded. They were partially prepared. And so they were, they were excluded. They were not ready. And so he says at the end of that one, therefore keep watch. Because you do not know the day or the hour. So there's that sense of urgency. Behold, I am coming soon. 
Now, you may say, well, how do we live that out? Because now we've learned in the book of Revelation all kinds of details that God has said are, is going to come before the second coming. And we don't see any of those things haven't happened yet. We don't see the, the, the seven trumpet judgments, anything like them yet. We don't see the seven bowl judgments. We don't see the Antichrist rising up to rule over the whole earth. We don't see these kinds of things. So the man of sin hasn't set up the abomination of desolation. So can I really, putting all that together, expect the imminent return of Christ? And in some ways, we have to hold all of those sorts of things in tension. Obviously, you don't know about your own future. You don't know what, what day you will die. You don't know when you will be called to give an account. Like that wicked man that wanted to build bigger barns and he was called a fool. This very night your soul will be required of you. That could happen today. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the second coming of Christ. And so we have to harmonize all that. But Jesus still has that word soon over all of us. Soon, I'm coming soon. You don't know the day or the hour. You need to be vigilant. You need to be watchful and energetically active serving me. That's what he's talking about. And so, how then shall we live? It's application time, friends. And I'm going to just walk through this text and try to draw out practical applications. As I was reading different commentaries, John MacArthur has been consistently helpful to me. And he organized all of this with the word, a sense of urgency, immediate. And I liked it, so I'm just borrowing that word, immediate, a sense of immediate application. And I just want to embrace that even if the Lord doesn't return for, any, for a long period of time in our lives still, there's a sense of immediacy. If you hear God speaking to you today and you don't put it into practice, your heart's going to get hard. If today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but put into practice what God wants you to do. That's the sense of immediacy. All right, so we're going to start with verse 7, immediate obedience to his word. Verse 7, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. The word keep in a simple way means to guard it, keep it protected, keep it sacred. A common translation uh, of this, to keep a command, is to obey it. To, to obey it. So we have a sense of protecting the book of Revelation against attacks, but also even more, protected against attacks coming from your own soul, from your own flesh, and from the world and the devil. We're, we're, we need to protect it so that we obey it. So within our own hearts, we must cherish these commands. We must take these commands, the word in with a noble and good heart that bears 160 or 30 times what was sown. That's what we want to do, obey. Jesus said, and Chris mentioned this, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. He, he measures, Jesus our Lord measures, measures love by obedience. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Now, Revelation is not filled with commands, actually. There are some but there's not many. There's far more in an average epistle in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There's a lot of commands there. And we should take the whole Bible. And this is the last chapter of the last book of the whole Bible. So it really sums up all of the commands God has given us that are binding on the hearts of Christians. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book could be the whole Bible at this point. And I think we should take it that way. So, while there are some commands in the book of Revelation, 
the general teaching carries with it a moral imperative. The time is short. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1.15. That's how you keep the words of this book. Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you ready to stand before God on judgment day and give an account? Do you have a savior? Do you have an atoning sacrifice for your sins? Talk more about that in a moment. Within the book of Revelation, the saints are described again and again, Revelation 12, 17, and then 14, 12, as those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. That's who the saints are. Now, there are two basic commands given in 2 Peter 3, which I think help. If you're saying, all right, how do I apply this? What do I do? I think this sums up what the Lord would say to us as the central two commands. 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So if you know what to look for, you're going to find the two journeys in that. The internal journey of holiness, the infinite journey of holiness. You ought to live a holy and godly life. You ought to put sin to death by the power of the Spirit. You ought to be pure as you wait for the day when the Lord will return. And then, secondly, the external journey of evangelism and missions. We're looking forward to the day of God and speed its coming by preaching the gospel. Because he said the kingdom will not come until every tribe and language and people and nation has had this gospel preached to it. And so, as we look ahead, we want to speed its coming by evangelism. So those are the overarching commands. Be holy and be a witness. But there's so many lesser commands as well that fit into what that means to be holy and to be a witness. I think we could easily, with good profit, go back to Revelation 2 and 3 and think about all the commands uh, that were given to the seven churches. And at the end of each of the seven, seven uh, letters of the seven churches, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So take in all seven messages and, and take it to heart and keep the commands. So like to the church at Ephesus, he warned them not to forsake their first love. Don't become progressively hard in your heart toward Jesus. Don't forsake your first love. To the church at Smyrna, be faithful unto the point of death in your witness. Be willing to pay a price to be witnesses. To the church at Pergamum, let's not tolerate sin. Especially sexual sin. To the church at Thyatira, let's not tolerate false teaching. Let's expose false teachers. To the church at Sardis, let's not... Let's not have a reputation of being alive, but we're actually dead. That could happen to a church like ours. If the Lord doesn't return within a generation, this church could have a reputation of the days when it was alive, but it's actually dead. Coasting. To the church at Philadelphia, let's walk through the door that Christ has set before us. The door of opportunity that no one can shut. Let's be faithful to walk through those doors. And to the church at Laodicea, let's not be lukewarm, but let's be on fire for Jesus. We don't want him to spew us out of his mouth, but let's be on fire for Christ. You could go through that and say, I'm going to take to heart, I'm going to keep the commandments that I see in those seven letters. Go through others as well. So let Revelation then give you a sense of the rightness of a continual seeking of perfect obedience. I want to obey all of the commands God's given to me, I want to be faithful to them, knowing I'm not justified by my obedience to the commands, but this is the best possible life I can live as I wait for the second coming of Christ. 
Next, we see immediate worship to him alone. Look at verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. Verse 9, but he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book, worship God. This is John's second time worshiping an angel in the book of Revelation. Isn't it amazing how honest the Bible is about its heroes? It's one of the ways I just know that this is a book of truth. We're all sinners. And so for the second time now, John falls down to worship an angel. He did it back in Revelation 19. And verse 10, at this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And now he does it here. But I think this brings us to the fundamental issue of worship. False worship, true worship. And the central problem of the human race is idolatry. This is the central problem problem of us in our sin as Paul puts very plainly in Romans 1 25 best definition of idolatry you'll find in the Bible they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the created things the creature rather than the creator who is forever praised amen that's the essence of idolatry to in your heart with your body with your life fall down and give homage and total dedication to a creature to a created thing. Satan's basic temptation is to call us away from worship of the true God to worship an idol of some sort. He tempted Jesus with that. Remember how he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all the, all the beauty of the creature. And he said, I'm going to give all of this if you just bow down and worship me. He's a creature. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, we know from the book of Revelation, chapter 13 and following, that the worst idolatry, the worst organized idolatry of the human race is still yet to come. The Antichrist is going to come, the beast from the sea, and he is going to do signs and wonders. He's going to survive, it seems, an assassination attempt or where he actually seems to have died and come back to life. And he is, backed by the hidden power of the dragon, of the devil, he is going to demand worship from the whole planet, from planet Earth. And there's going to be the beast from the Earth, the false prophet, who will set up an idol, an image, and give it life supernaturally, and will compel people under the pain of death to worship the idol and to receive a mark of the beast. And if you don't receive it, you can't buy or sell and probably be executed if you do receive it, you'll spend eternity in hell. We saw all that in Revelation 13. So idolatry, the worst is yet to come. But conversely, there is no book of the Bible that so plainly depicts true, holy, righteous worship as well. You get the image of, of the resurrected, glorified Christ in Revelation 1, moving through the seven golden lampstands. And then in Revelation 4, the image of the throne of Almighty God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And they're all worshiping God, the creator of all things. And then in Revelation 5, we have the lamb looking as if it had been slain. And they're all celebrating Christ the Redeemer, God the creator, Christ the Redeemer. Concentric circles and 24 thrones and glory and glory and glory. There's no book of the Bible that gives you a better picture of healthy worship of the true, 
the triune God. And so practical application is worship God. I mean, worship him. Attack any idols you see in your heart. Is there any created thing that has a a hold on you? Is there something you're living for that you know is dark and it's a creature and it's become too important to you and you're pursuing it blindly, it's dominating your life? It could be success, it it could be money, power, it could be sex, it could be pleasure, sensual pleasures, it could be entertainment. Go after it. As John said, 1 John 5, 21, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And then conversely, whenever you see remnants of God's beauty in nature, whenever you see the ocean or the mountains or rivers or lakes or anything that causes you to to wonder at this marvelous creation, you can be like they do in Revelation 4, giving God praise and glory and honor for he created all things and by his will they were created and have their being. And whenever you feel yourself to be a sinner and you know that you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, just go to Revelation 5 and join in that celebration. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign forever. You can just worship him. God the creator, Christ the redeemer. Next, we see immediate proclamation of his warnings and promises. Look at verse 10 and 11. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Now, this is fascinating. He said, don't seal up the words. This is a direct reference to the book of Daniel at the end of Daniel 12. Daniel is told twice, seal up the scroll because it concerns a distant time. Seal it up. You won't understand it. It's not for you anyway. Well, it doesn't literally say that, but it's about what was going on. Seal it up. But here he's told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Now, the sealing up was a sense in which you can't entrust these words to the common people. They won't be able to understand them. They will read them and they'll be confused by them. That's the idea of sealing them up. But here he says, do not seal them up. So that implies these words are clear enough. Therefore, preachers would do well to preach sermons on the book of Revelation. And drink in the blessing of Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Now, as I have cast far and wide for all the help I can get over the last year preaching through this book, I've been amazed how few preachers even try to do what I've done over the last year. Very few. Try to go line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation. It doesn't happen often. And I think they're missing a blessing. And I know why they do it, because it's a hard book to interpret. It's difficult. Those that do zero in, they generally do so in ways that I think are not helpful. Serving an eccentric eschatology that zeroes in on details and makes specific predictions that I think are not helpful for the body of Christ, if not openly toxic. But for us, you don't have to do all that. All you have to do is just take the book, as we've done, and just read it. Read it consistently. Drink it in. And then as you take in the themes of this book, the holiness of God, the power of God, the coming wrath of God, The beauty of the new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem. You just drink in these themes all the time. Proclaim it. Don't seal it up. 
but get the word out. That's what's going on here. These words are clear enough to be understood. Myself, I was raised uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, in my lifetime, Vatican II happened. I was a baby when it happened, real little. And they moved finally the Mass from Latin to the vernacular, the, whatever language was in that country. And I thought, man, that took a long time. <laughs> I'm like, the majority of the Roman Catholic world went into church on Sunday, didn't understand a word. And then I came to find out that over the centuries, that was a consistent pattern where many times people who translated the Bible into the vernacular would be hunted down like criminals and executed like William Tyndale and others who translated the Bible into English. And his translations were collected and burned by the Roman Catholic authorities. Why? See, why? Well, back in 1199, the Pope... Innocent III, wrote to a bishop of Metz. This is what he said. The mysteries of the sacraments of faith should not be explained everywhere to everyone, since they cannot be understood everywhere by everyone, but only to, to those who can conceive of them by their faithful intellect. Because of this, the apostle, St. Paul, said to the simpler people, as unto little ones, I gave you milk to drink, not meat. For strong meat is for the perfect as he said to others, we speak wisdom among the perfect. Such is the profundity of divine scripture that not only simple and illiterate men, but even prudent and learned men do not fully suffice to investigate its wisdom. For it is written, seek not the things that are too high for you. You understand what's going on there? They're saying this book is too hard for you to understand don't read it. And as a matter of fact, it's best if it would not be translated into your language because you'll never understand it. But the angel told John, do not seal up the words of this prophecy. Publish them broadly and widely. Drink them in and read them. I'm not saying you'll understand everything. There are difficulties. There are mysteries. But we need to take it in. And God's word does not return void. As Isaiah 55 says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Now, when I preached that in Isaiah 55, I said, is that true? I mean, do you find that to be true? Everywhere the word of God goes out, it achieves what God sent it out to do. Well, then, if that's the case, why are there so many unbelievers? Why do so many people hear the gospel and they don't repent and believe? Well, it's because we need to understand, like grown-ups, theological grown-ups, that God isn't sending out the word to do the same thing in every case. He is hardening some by the word, and he's saving some by that same word. And so we see that here. Look at verse 11. Let him who is wrong to continue to do wrong, and let him who is vile continue to be vile. But conversely, let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. It's interesting, the parallelism. Let him who does wrong and let him who is wrong. And then let him who does righteously and him who is righteously. That's how it's written. And it's a bifurcation. The wicked and the righteous. They are going to be confirmed in this by the word of God. Now, I think this means ultimately in heaven and in hell. These words, verse 11, will come finally true 
for the righteous and the wicked. Those that are confirmed in their righteousness by the ministry of the word of God will spend eternal, eternity righteous. There'll be no future fall from heaven, but forever they will continue to be righteous and do righteously. But the wicked, at some point this word will be said as a decree of judgment over them. Let him who is wicked continue to be wicked. And let him who is unrighteous or does unrighteously continue forever to do that. It's a final verdict. Now, in the meantime, we have the hope of the gospel, don't we? Someone can actually cross over from death to life. A wicked Saul of Tarsus in the morning can become a transformed Saul in the evening. That radical transformation can happen to the thief on the cross in an instant. He can suddenly see who Jesus is and believe in him. And so we are yearning that the wicked will not continue to be wicked. And those who do unrighteously will actually repent of theirs and cross over. And so look at verse 14. We're not going to get to it today, but I just want to mention it by way of hope. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates in the city. So what does that mean? It means that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have violated God's commandments and laws. We have not kept his ten commandments. And we have not kept his two commandments to love God and to love our neighbor. We have soiled our robes. And God sent his son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life and died in the place of sinners. He shed his cleansing, atoning blood for sinners like you and me. And by faith in him, you can wash your robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. And I would just urge you, while there's time, to do it. And so verse 17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the, the free gift of the water of life and drink and live forever. So that's the message we get to proclaim. And that's the message I'm proclaiming to you right now. If you came in here thirsty and dead and soiled, Jesus can cleanse you. He can, he can pour the living water of life down your parched throat and you'll live forever. All you have to do is turn from your sins, repent of your wickedness, and turn to Christ and he'll forgive you. And, and we as Christians, we get to preach that message this week. We get to share that with somebody else at, at the workplace or in the neighborhood or somebody at a convenience store. We get to share that message and that's what we're called on to do. Now, finally, I'm going to talk about this a whole sermon next week, verse 12. I'm going to dedicate a whole sermon to verse 12. Jesus said, behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will repay each person according to what he has done. But to steal a little bit of thunder from next week, what this is saying is immediately get busy and serve his kingdom. Be faithful to serve him. Whatever your calling is, whatever your spiritual gifts are, whatever good works he has prepared for you to do, do them. And you will never lose your reward. Now, next week, we're going to talk about rewards. We're going to talk about how the things you do here in life will enrich you in heaven forever. We'll talk about that next week. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had to study. Thank you for the specific applications you give us that we have walked through today. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to worship you with all of our hearts by the power of the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to to be faithful 
to obey the commands you have given us, to keep the words that you have given us, and to fight for the purity of the word of God against all satanic attacks. Help us, O Lord, to be faithful to obey by the Spirit. Help us, O Lord, to put into practice the many, many lessons we've had in the book of Revelation so that you may be glorified and that we might be blameless and unafraid of this coming, that we'll be ready at any moment for the second coming of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.